Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money. The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with Cullen Roach, CIO of Discipline Funds and founder of Orkham Financial Group. The arc of this episode is inflation, from how to measure it, to what drives it, to the impact monetary and fiscal stimulus has on it, and if the inflation we're seeing today could be short-lived or longer-lasting. Cullen is also behind the popular investing blog, Pragmatic Capitalism, and when you hear some of his answers, you'll understand his pragmatic approach to understanding inflation, the economy, and other macro-related topics. As always, thanks for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Discipline Funds, Cullen Roach. Hey, Cullen. Thank you for jumping on with us today. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Second time around for you and uh, the Excess Returns podcast, so we appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. Um, I think most of our listeners know that, you know, we oftentimes don't get into macro-related topics, but when we do, we like to, I think, try to bring you in so you can help us understand and our listeners understand um, some important themes, themes and topics that um, are important for investors. And one of the things I think that's on a lot of investors' mind right now is inflation. Um, so inflation has a lot of different implications to the price that we pay for goods and services, to the rates set by the Federal Reserve and the cost of borrowing to corporate profits, the value of the dollar, performance of stocks and bonds. And I mean, we're going to talk a lot about, about this, but it really does influence so many things in our daily life and in our investment portfolios. And so we wanted to use um, this time with you to just really do a deep dive and better understand inflation and the drivers of inflation and more. Um, so to start, I just wanted to sort of to level set here. Maybe we could just talk a little bit about sort of at least in the U.S. economy, the history of inflation, like what has the range of inflation been um, over the last 80 years? Um, what are maybe some of the highest points of inflation and lowest points of inflation? And then and then sort of talk about this environment we've been in really since the great financial crisis, but that some of the changes that I think we're seeing um, more recently yeah. in the price of goods and services. Yeah, so uh, well, historically speaking, the United States has been, as far as, inflation goes a pretty stable economic environment so probably about three percent or so average inflation the only real time where inflation got pretty scary was in the 1970s when we had kind of the big oil shock and you had sort of this stagflationary environment where inflation got up into the double digits and you know one of the really interesting things with inflation is that i'm convinced that nobody really knows exactly what causes inflation and that it actually is so dynamic that it's totally different inside of all sorts of different economies. And nobody really knows what that point is where um, there's sort of an escape velocity in a lot of 
of inflation environments where you can get to this point where people's faith in in the and the demand for money kind of starts to get really slippery where you had we were close to that environment in the 1970s but nobody really knows what causes it then to really like rear its ugly head where it starts to go into like a hyperinflation is technically like a 50% plus rate of inflation and we were talking before we jumped on that a real hyperinflation is an environment where when you walk into a store the price of those goods and services are probably different when you're walking out of the store. And so we're talking about a super extreme type of inflation and nobody really knows what causes that sort of escape velocity in the price. And so inflation's a really, even though you can kind of theorize about what causes it, nobody really knows is like, like it's almost like trying to talk about the, um, like a market panic. What causes the stock prices to go when they start falling, you know, 10, 20% and things kind of start getting scary? What causes something like the financial crisis to occur where you get this like waterfall decline in demand for assets? And it's all sort of psychological, psychological to some extent. And so nobody's theory of inflation is perfect, but at least in the United States, we have a somewhat good understanding of the fact that one of the main drivers, at least in a, a in a fiat monetary system is that when you have an enormous amount of goods and services that are valuable to people, the demand for those goods and services relative to the demand for money will be strong. And so what happens in a, a high inflation environment is that the, the demand for the amount of those goods and services, it, it increases enormously relative to the amount of money, whereas typically when there's not enough money in the economy, you get the inverse, which is kind of the situation that the U.S. economy has been in for the last 20 years, where a lot of economists argue that there's been like this um, safe asset shortage, where there's literally the demand for money, the demand for, for financial assets is higher than the demand for goods and services. So you've had this sort of steady low rate of inflation. And the interesting thing with COVID was that we... We, we sort of flipped that on its head in a lot of ways where we had COVID created through the lockdowns and some of the, the weird labor shortages and things like that. You had this inverted situation occur in the short term where there's actually a supply shortage of a lot of these goods and services. But at the same time, the government creates, you know, $6 trillion worth of new financial assets. And when that happens, you get a huge amount of demand for fewer goods and services relative to now what is a higher amount of money, higher aggregate demand, lower supply. And so that's kind of the environment we're navigating right now where you've got this, I don't want to say a high inflation, you've got an uncomfortable amount of inflation, um, in especially in the headline uh, consumer price index of like five and a half percent that people are starting to wonder, you know, are we are we nearing that point where we could see a 1970s style double digit inflation or worse, some people are saying that we're going to veer into that hyperinflation environment. Could you just explain the different inflation in indexes out there? So you have the CPI, which is the consumer price index, you have the core CPI, and then you have um this third one, the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. Do you, what are the differences between the three of those? So the, the basic thinking is that all of these things are more or less the same version of each other. So the PCE, for instance, is sort of GDP based. The CPI 
is a household survey done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And they, they arrive at more or less the same basic readings in terms of their, their year-over-year rate of change. But the, the way to think of these things is that it's, it's almost like if you look at the stock indices, it's like the, the CPI is kind of like the S&P 500 and the PCE is kind of like the Dow. They are measuring approximately the same thing, but the exact readings are going to be a little bit different. So um, in terms of headline versus core, what the, the Fed likes to do, the Fed looks at both headline and core of all of these indices. But what they're trying to do, and historically, the 70s were one of the periods where this was true. The, the big oil boom in the, the early 2000s was evident of this you get components of it that are really volatile and can basically give you false understandings of, of what's going on in the average. And that's what they're really trying to understand. They're trying to understand average prices and do they need to do something policy-wise that it is required to combat that to some degree. But they don't want a, a single component or a large weighting in the component to give you a misunderstanding of what's going on. And so a lot of people criticize the core component because like gasoline is obviously, and gas and food are obviously like huge components there. And they're, they're essentially stripping these components out to look at the core reading. Um, but these are also very volatile components. So the way that I always like to describe this to people is that the Fed isn't only looking at core inflation. They're just trying to use that as a reading that's in addition to this, the headline reading, so that they don't get a false perception of what's going on um, with the broader inflation trend. So, you know, an example is like in 2008, you guys probably remember, the price of oil was going crazy. The price of oil went up to like $160 or something like that. And if you're in the Fed and you're, this is I think the summer of 2008 or so was when the price of oil peaked. Well, you could have been looking at that and thinking, holy cow, we're on the verge of, you know, like some sort of double digit inflationary environment that's similar to the 1970s. And we now know, well, the exact opposite was actually true. This volatile component was giving you basically a misunderstanding of what the, the long-term likelihood of the trend was because we ended up with this huge long-term deflationary trend and that, that deflation was creeping into the economy and other components were, were giving that reading. But if you just let the oil and the the energy sector allow you to give this sort of like outsized um, indication of what the inflation trend was you were more likely to fall for the idea that you were we were falling into a 1970s when the exact opposite is true so it's it's really just a, a another varying indicator that gives the fed hopefully a better idea although you could make the argument that the fed also has no idea what causes inflation and has, you know, a pretty poor um, record of actually trying to contain inflation in certain environments. So, yeah, that, no, that's that, that's helpful to kind of get our arms around what, you know, what goes into these things, but also that it still might not be they're not like the perfect predictor of future inflation in these goods and services. Um, how is so it seems like like I a lot of things are up a lot. So stocks are up a lot. I mean, the prices of a lot of things are up, but, you know, housing prices are up a lot. I think housing prices may have seen the biggest year over year increase um, a few months ago, at least since like 2005. So, and, you know, housing for most people is, you know, they're, if they own a house, it's, it's potentially their largest um, asset. So, but then you have this issue of 
buying versus renting. Um, and so how does house, housing pricing prices come into the calculation of inflation? Housing is a, a really tricky one because what inflation and especially the consumer price index, what they're trying to really measure is the damage caused by price increases of the things that we have to replace. And so like if you, we all have to eat. So when the price of food goes up, you literally consume food. And if the price of food is twice tomorrow what it was today, well, that's a measurable decline in your living standards because now you have to go out and spend twice as much money tomorrow as you, as you had today to buy the same amount of food. Um, housing is really tricky because we technically consume the physical home that we live in over time. I mean, it's, li it's literally falling apart over time. And so you have to replace the components of a house over time. But like I would argue that the land that a house sits on is basically just a, an appreciating asset. And so it, re, it tends to retain its value through the long term because we're not, there's, we're not creating more land. And you know, even though you have to rebuild the house at some point, um, there's, a, there's a net benefit to owning a home and, and being invested in it. So it's more of a, it has this element of a capital good that actually has a positive return on investment. For a lot of people, for the majority of people, when the price of a home goes up, you're not worse off. Um, you're in a, in, a, in a lot of cases, you're better off. Um, so it, it's like if, the, if you measured inflation by what the stock market does, well, that wouldn't give you a, a very good idea on whether our living standards are rising or falling because we're measurably better off when the stock market increases in value. Whereas when the value of food increases, we're not better off because we literally consume those things and we have to replace them. And so Housing is really tricky because it's got this sort of dual element where we do consume it to some good degree, but it also is a capital good to some degree where it has a, a net positive return on investment. And so the, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they try to measure the, the change in housing in CPI based on, on rents, basically, because rents are, are basically consumed. You know, you, when you rent a home or an apartment or whatever, you are essentially consuming that income. Um, and so they try to measure the value of it based on rents and which, again, it kind of gives you a, a little bit of a, of a false reading just because like in a period like right now when home prices are surging, well, it gives you this very uneven understanding of, of living standards because people who haven't bought a home well, they're worse off because now they, they can afford less home if they want to try to purchase a home. And typically, the, the price of a home, the value of a home flows through to rents if you're renting that home out or if you're or apartments or whatever. And so people who are renting are very likely to be worse off when home prices surge. So it again, you get this very uneven effect where the measurement of, of shelter in the CPI doesn't give an actual average understanding of how much our living standards are changing. So it's, it's a housing, the bottom line is, it's a very messy component of consumer price indices. Do, do inflation metrics deal with the idea of the quality of what I'm getting? So as, as a simple example, like in, back in 2008, an iPhone might have been $800. That's probably wrong. But, and let's say it's $1,000 today. Technically, there's been inflation, but I'm getting a far better product now. So you could argue there's actually been deflation in terms of, you know, if you adjust for quality. So does that fact get, does that get reflected in the indexes? 
It does. Again, it's sort of a, they call this hedonic adjustments inside of like the CPI. And it's a, to be honest, it's a very subjective measure. So it's, you know, like taking an iPhone. I mean, an iPhone is what? It's a, it's a, it's a camera and a flashlight and a video recorder and a phone. And, you know, it's, there's, there's this old Radio Shack ad that floats around Twitter every once in a while. It's got like a hundred different, you know, technologies on it. And the iPhone now has all of these things inside of them. But the prices on this old Radio Shack ad, if you add them up, it's like something crazy. It's like $30,000 or something if you wanted to buy all these things back then. Whereas today you buy all of those components essentially for a $1,000 device. So, but the way that the BLS goes through this is they do try to adjust for quality improvements in technologies. And so, but it's a, it's a somewhat subjective measure, which again, leaves them open to huge amounts of criticism because the, you know, how do you measure exactly the, you know, the, the quality improvement of, you know, say when, uh, when our phone lines go from, you know, 5k to 6k in the next few years, you know, or five, sorry, 5g to 6g in the next few years, you know, what's the, the hedonic adjustment that's required for that to measure whether or not there has been a, an improvement in our quality of life and, the, and whatnot. You could argue there wasn't really much of a change in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you talk to like our grandparents or something like that, they would look at all of us sitting around like idiots on our phones and they'd say, you know, you guys are all, your lives are worse off than they were before, even though you think like there's been some sort of, you know, living standard improvement. Um, so again, it's, this is, it's a super messy discussion that you don't really get a clean answer on because the, the nature of all of this is so subjective and, and frankly, it's so, per, inflation is a very personal thing. You know, we, none of us experience the same inflation. And so even using an average measure is really messy because my inflation is not the same as Justin's inflation. And so, you know, the way we'll perceive these things are just totally different and, and very personal. I want to ask you about the, how the Fed targets inflation, because I believe they're still targeting a similar rate of inflation as they have been in the past, but they've sort of changed the way they're going about doing that. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about what the Fed's target level of inflation is and how they've sort of changed the way they approach targeting that level. Yeah, so the Fed tries to maintain a 2% core inflation rate across time. And that's, you know, that's basically the, the level that they would argue is a is consistent with living standards that are still rising. So the, the basic thinking is that to, you know, without getting too wonky, the thinking is that, and the theory is that inflation is sticky to some degree, basically meaning that we, we tend not to have deflationary environments because the, for instance, wage increases, we, we measure our wage increases relative to what they were last year. And we think of ourselves as when we're improving and we're becoming more productive, well, we like to think, well, we should be getting a wage increase. And so there's some degree of stickiness in, in price changes where year over year, there's almost like a, a natural increase in inflation a little bit because of the way that we, we measure our performance and whatnot uh, in terms of labor. And so the Fed measures basically 2% as being the rate that's sort of a tolerable rate of inflation that is not necessarily inconsistent with improving living standards. And they, 
they basically try to achieve that rate by managing not only inflation expectations, but also implementing monetary policy, doing things like quantitative easing and uh, managing interest rates in a way that they try to sort of massage the economy to, to sort of maintain this, this 2% rate. And I mean, to be honest, I would, I would probably argue that, um, that the Fed's policies are not that they're not incredibly important and incredibly powerful, but I would argue that the mainstream media exaggerates to some degree the extent to which the Fed is actually able to control inflation and private sector prices. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, back when I took Econ 101, you know, one of the first things they taught, taught us is this idea of the Phillips curve and this inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. And that's sort of been challenged in recent years. So I'm just wondering, you know, is that something the Fed still uses? Is, is that something that's sort of been invalidated? Like, I just want to maybe talk about this idea of the Phillips curve. Inflation, again, is it's so complex and there's so many variables that can impact it that, you know, taking – I would argue the Phillips curve is not incorrect. I would argue that it's oversimplified. So taking this very simple measure and just breaking it down to, well, low inflation causes high – or sorry, low employment causes high inflation and the inverse, you know, it, it's just – it's messier than that. I mean, so take a take a really simple example. Like, let's say that, like, let's say the MMT people got in control of the economy. Well, what the MMT people would do is they would implement full employment right away because they would implement a job guarantee. And so you would automatically have this environment where the economy was always operating at full employment. Well, what happens to every economic textbook in that environment? They all get blown up because now you're in, a, in an environment of permanent full employment. And I would argue that you could have an environment where by some technical definition, like if you read like some of the MMT work, like they argue that like some of the jobs that might be fulfilled through a job guarantee or things like they pay people to be like artists and stuff like that, that, I mean, I love you guys, but like if you signed up as artists for the job guarantee, I definitely like, I mean, outside of the government paying you, like nobody else wants to pay you to, to, to draw pictures, you know? And so it's one of these things where, yeah, the government will pay you to have this job, but like you, nobody in the private sector would actually pay most people to be artists. And so these are sort of, you know, even though we define these as jobs, they're sort of phony to a certain degree. And so you could, again, you kind of get into this, you know, this definitional debate where it's like, well, okay, we're technically at full employment, which means that the economy should be tight and demand should be really strong. But you could make an argument that, you could have really high inflation in that environment because you're basically just paying people to do a bunch of phony jobs where you're just increasing the money supply and you're not actually building or creating the goods and resources that are required to match the, the amount of money that we're creating. Therefore, we should see prices increase, which in a Phillips curve world, it sort of flips everything on its head because now that relationship is flipped upside down. And so... I would argue that the Phillips curve is not necessarily wrong. It's just it's an incomplete measure that's based on definitions that are not necessarily um, completely accurate. That makes sense. Before we talk about sort of the potential for inflation now, I sort of want to talk about why we haven't seen inflation like many have predicted in the past. And so there's been these three major trends that I think have been these long-term deflationary trends. And I was wondering if I maybe just went through each one of them, if you could list maybe why that trend has been deflationary and also if you think that might be changing in the future in terms of, of the trend. So the, the first one is technology. So you, can you talk about why technology has held down inflation? 
So it kind of just goes back to that same thing we were talking about before with the iPhone, where technology, it's basically, it's deflationary in the sense that it's, it's compressing all of these technologies into smaller and smaller components, literally. And so it has this deflationary effect where the, not only is the turnover much greater and the supply creation much more efficient, um, but you're just you're able to produce so much you're able to get so much more out of smaller and smaller components now that def- or technology just has this very long term deflationary trend in it because of that element. The, the second one I want to ask about is demographics. That's another thing people have pointed to as sort of a long term deflationary trend. I'm wondering if you could talk about why that is. And also, is that something that might be changing sort of in the future? Demographic trends are deflationary in a lot of the developed world because essentially it comes down to aging population and slowing population growth. So this ultimately comes down to reduced aggregate demand. So from the demand side of the equation, you just have a reduction in demand because we literally have a slowing rate of the number of people that are coming into um, the economy. And you also just have this, this big change in the way that the d- demand dynamic is actually flowing through the economy. So for instance, um, you know, after the baby boomers were all born, you had this sort of big boom in, in housing. And housing is such a huge component of the economy that, for instance, from the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the 2000s, you had a huge, huge amount of demand for housing because you had all of these people who were suddenly you know, born into the population that needed to buy a home. And as the population gets older, and the the rate of change of population growth changes that trend it just it all kind of slows down and so it's not necessarily i shouldn't say it's a deflationary trend it's a disinflationary trend in that it means that the it's going to be consistent with a a slowing rate of inflation over time because the the rate of aggregate demand slows down and so this is sort of the big trend that you're seeing in especially in developed Europe. Japan is sort of the classic example where you have this closed economic system there where the, the population is not growing and the population is aging. And so you just have this sort of inherent deflationary or disinflationary trend inside of the economy because of the demographic trends. And the last one I want to ask you about is globalization. Why would that put downward pressure on inflation over time? So globalization basically comes down to the fact that we're essentially we're outsourcing the production of a lot of things and we're we're outsourcing the the labor of a lot of things. So um, the way to think of it is that it basically through competition, it's basically putting downward pressure on domestic prices because you're you're creating things for a lower value overseas and then importing them. But you're also you've got the the workforce has in a lot of ways it's opened up to this globalized network now where you can um, you know you can you can jump on you know like various websites and have people in India or these low wage countries perform tasks that would have otherwise been performed domestically and so this competition for um, essentially labor and products goods and services has put downward pressure on inflation through globalization. So the, the inverse is that this kind of – it kind of creates a, a reversion to mean sort of where the, um, the, the developing countries are actually increasing a higher rate of inflation than they otherwise would because they're getting paid from these richer countries, whereas the richer countries are sort of – they're slowing it, it, their rate of inflation to some degree because they're able to take advantage of the, the lower cost of goods 
and labor in developing parts of the world. Right, that all makes sense. Back to the point you said about us becoming artists. So I guess you're telling me I got to take my podcasting quantitative artist title <laughs> off of LinkedIn. I mean, if people pay, are paying <laughs> you for that, that's great. <laughs> okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to add, and we talked about this the first time you were, you were with us, but I think it would be good just to, to sort of look at this again or talk about this again, which is um, after the financial crisis, so this was 2008, 2009, um, and the government stepped in, but then you had a lot of the, uh, you know, the Fed basically was implementing, you know, quantitative easing or monetary stimulus. And I, I was one, you know, when I would look at the Fed balance sheet then, and it was like went from less than a trillion to maybe four trillion. And I don't know when it was 2012, 2013, right around that period of time, if I have my timing right. I was like, oh, inflation's coming. This is, you know, now, now it's here, you know, rates are going to go up and, you know, it never materialized. And, you know, why, why is that in your mind? So my argument back then basically was that what something like quantitative easing does at an operational level is pretty simple. It basically, so think of it outside of all of the, the government's other actions. Actually think of it inside of a situation where the government is running a surplus. So the the government is actually taxing more than it's spending in, in this environment. And then you have the Fed is out there doing quantitative easing. Well, what's technically happening is that the aggregate government is issuing now fewer bonds. They're actually taxing more than they're, than they're spending. So they're actually taking money out of the private sector to a certain degree. And what the Fed is doing then is the Fed is taking the composition of the existing private sector assets and they're merely changing them because what quantitative easing does is quantitative easing involves the Fed expanding their balance sheet. They create reserves or deposits and they swap them. They go out and buy bonds. And so the, the Fed is actually buying the bonds, taking them out of the private sector, putting them on their balance sheet, which is functionally, it's not a, a balance sheet that's in the economy. So they're removing these bonds and they're swapping them with cash. So it's almost like a situation where they're essentially swapping your bond account into like a checking account, a deposit account now. And the question is, is like when you, if you were to swap a savings account for a checking account, well, would you go out and spend more money? I mean, in all likelihood, you know, in your mind, you have the same exact amount of money. You actually have lower income because now you're earning less interest on your account. And so what the Fed does is at an operational level is very similar to that operation of changing a, a savings account into a checking account. And so outside of the rest of the government's actions, there's no real operational reason for this to cause high inflation, even though, you know, we kind of get into the whole discussion before about definitions and like the government is technically creating more money, but they're also removing bonds. And so, you know, just because they're adding more money, does it mean that we have more financial assets? No. So that's really the kicker there is that at, at the Fed-specific level, they're not doing anything that on its own should cause a lot of inflation. Whereas my tone has been very different in the last like three years since COVID in, was initiated, mainly because, not because of what the Fed was doing, but because of what the government, the Treasury was doing. The Treasury spent, you know, $3 trillion in 2020 and then 2021 again. And so these are real measurable balance sheet increases where the government is now, they're literally printing new bonds and issuing them. So they're, they're issuing new financial assets that the private sector now holds on their balance sheet. So in a way, if you, if you think of it, if you wanted to say that um, the government prints assets, 
or think of it a better example is thinking of the treasury as as literally printing money rather than bonds to finance their deficits well that's the situation where you actually have a huge increase in the private sector financial asset balance it's not so much about what the fed is doing it's more about what the aggregated government is doing and so the fed in a lot of ways they come in after the fact and they change the composition but they don't necessarily increase the composition on their own and so that's the big difference between 2008 and 2020 is that the treasury in 2008 they did a lot i think they 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 ran like the you know the recovery act was something like an 800 billion dollar program but it was nothing compared to what they did in 2020 where i mean the covid relief packages and the the subsequent stimulus packages were humongous and i think that's the main reason why we're seeing a, a big difference in the inflationary impact of the COVID uh, response versus the financial crisis response. You recently had this uh, tweet on Twitter. I'm going to read it to you here because it, it, it plays into this, um, I think, to a large extent. You, you, you wrote, was it worth it? We paid trillions to make the COVID recession disappear in an instant. We avoided unemployment and hardship for some in exchange for higher inflation for everyone thoughts. And I know that got a lot of play and, and feedback, and I just kind of wanted to sort of flip it around and ask you, do you, do you think it, it, it was worth it? Do you think we got the benefit of it, or is it still to be determined? Yeah, it's probably TBD to, uh, to a certain extent. I got a ton of hate mail from that tweet, by the way. It was, that was fun. Um, but um, no, I, I kind of have a mixed view on it. So my view was that when, when COVID started, it it looked a lot like it was going to be Spanish flu 2.0 and the Spanish flu killed 1% of the total population. And, you know, one of the things I always talk about is the Spanish flu killed a lot of children. And so maybe I'm just hypersensitive to this because I have a, a two-year-old um, and another one coming, but I, if COVID had been killing children, it, this would have been a whole different couple of years. We would have, I mean, you wouldn't have seen me anywhere. I probably wouldn't have let my left my house for two years if I was potentially exposing my daughter to to something that could kill her. So, um, you know, COVID in a lot of ways turned out to be a lot less worse than it looked like it was going to be in March of 2020. And in March of 2020, when we were starting all these big programs, I was kind of like, yeah, we need to throw the kitchen sink at this thing because we don't really know what this is going to do to the population over the next 18 months. And so to me at that time, it made a lot of sense to you know, tell people, hey, stay home, don't spread this thing, be careful, um, and here's some money to hold you over in the meantime. Whereas I think the longer and longer we got into it, the worse and worse that argument got as we kind of realized like, okay, this thing isn't killing kids and it's not as scary as, I don't mean to downplay all the, you know, the trauma that it caused, but like this thing was not the Spanish flu 2.0. And so as it kind of became more and more evident that this thing wasn't as dangerous as maybe a lot of us worried at first, I think then that's where the debate gets really messy, where we, you know, we, we probably sent out, you know, too many stimulus checks, um, too, too long. We, the moratoriums, I mean, were in my mind, the moratoriums were kind of ridiculous. The, the lockdowns in a lot of places went on way longer than they should have. Um, you know, I just found out the local city here is canceling the Christmas parade. And I'm like, I'm like, what, like, what the what the hell are we still doing? Like, you know, things are more or less normal and we're canceling outdoor events still. It's like so there's a lot to criticize, I think, in the last year, whereas 
when we were in the throes of it in March and April and things were really, really scary, I think the stimulus made a ton of sense. And But I think there's been a lot to criticize rightly in the last year. So um, again, it's kind of one of these messy situations where I don't know. To some degree, it's easy to sit here in hindsight and say, oh, yeah, they shouldn't have done this and they shouldn't have done that. But um, I still think even at the time, especially in, in early 2021, it was kind of easy to say, OK, look, this thing is not as bad as we expected. So let's kind of ease up on some of the, the stimulus, you know. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to uh, say it. Um so right now, there's, there's two different camps when it comes to the inflation we're seeing now. One, which includes, I think, most of the Fed, although correct me if I'm wrong, I think some are starting to change their tune a little bit, is that, you know, this inflation is transitory. It's going to, you know, uh, start to slow down or even fall maybe um, as some of the supply chain stuff gets worked through and given some of the trends that we were talking about earlier with technology and demographics and globalization. But then there's another camp that thinks that, you know, we're in for a sustained sort of period of inflation here that's going to be above the Fed's target. So, you know, without making, I mean, maybe you could give probabilities. I mean, where do you think, where do you think we're going to land? Or is it going to be maybe somewhere in the middle here? I actually, I do think it's going to be somewhere in the middle there. So the, the whole concept of transitory is really messy because the, it implies that the prices that we knew before COVID are coming back and they're not. Like if you paid $5 for a beer before COVID and that beer now costs $8, it's going to cost $8 in a year for sure. Um, so that price, the way that most of us perceive it, the price is not transitory. But what the Fed is really talking about is the rate of change. And so what they're saying is that if the price of a beer goes from $5 to $8 and then it goes up to $9 in year three, they would argue that that's transitory. Whereas most people would say, you know, What's you know what's transitory about that? My beer now costs nine dollars, where it used to cost five dollars, and so. But the rate of change has slowed. So from the way the Fed measures inflation, the price changes have been transitory, in that their the rate of change is slowing down. And so going back to their the target inflation rate of two percent, the Fed expects that we will see a two percent rate of inflation at some point in the next few years, and. I think that, I mean, not only did they kind of bungle the, the language about this because the term transitory is such a messy term to begin with because it's so disconnected from the way we all actually perceive inflation, but it's, it's just, it was never likely to be as transitory as they expected because so much of what's going on is just, these are huge, huge macro trends that are unfolding here. And COVID disrupted so much of the economy that the idea that a lot of this was going to come back online within you know even six to 12 months is is crazy i mean like go look at some of the videos of like the situation in like the los angeles ports where there's this huge backup of ships the sheer size of this issue is unfathomable i mean there are so many containers there and it will take just operationally it will take so long to unwind the backup there that you're talking about a situation that this is going to take quarters it it could take years for some of these these backlogs to be unwound. And so this whole situation is likely to to persist a lot longer than a lot of people think. But I I don't think we're in the situation where we are veering into like like if if headline inflation right now is five and a half percent, I'm not in the camp that says that 
we're going to veer into like 10%. I think that it's going to be more of a moderate decline. And a lot of that is based on the fact that so much of this was, was due to the aggregate demand boost from the fiscal stimulus. And we're going to see in 2022 and 2023, you're going to see a big decline in the fiscal stimulus because we're un, we're basically backing off with so much of the, the stimulus packages that we had that like the Hutchins Center, um, they estimate that the fiscal contribution to GDP in 2022 is going to be negative two and a half percent, whereas it was it was positive 14 percent at a couple of points during COVID. So the fiscal stimulus had a huge impact on aggregate demand. And it's as it peels back now, it's good. You're going to start seeing the reverse to a large degree. So you've got kind of two factors here where I think that the the economy is unwinding the 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 backlog, the supply constraint to some degree. So you're going to have a, a boost in supply in the coming year or two, and you're going to have a reduction in aggregate demand, primarily coming from the, the government. And that is a situation that it actually starts to look a lot like 2010, 2011, where you had sort of this similar situation where people were kind of worried about all the stimulus back then. And they were worried that we were reaching this environment where we might have high inflation. And it turned out that the opposite was 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 what was actually unfolding. And I think we're in sort of a similar situation where I expect, based on my models of inflation, I expect core inflation to be about two and a half percent. So it's three and a half percent right now. And I expect it to fall to about two and a half percent by the end of next year. But again, you're going to hear about high inflation for the next six to maybe nine months. Um, because a lot of this, especially like the year over year numbers, they, they don't even start to look good until like next summer. And because th that's when this, if you've heard of this base effect um, number where people are basically saying that like, when you look at the, the numbers from like right now or earlier this summer, you were comparing a high reading to what was the trough basically of COVID, the, the ultimate bottom of demand. And when you get into next summer, you're going to be doing kind of the opposite where prices are going to be higher, but on a year over year basis, we're going to be comparing them then to what was the, the a big COVID boom. And so it won't look, it, it's kind of like using the beer example again, you're comparing that $9 to $8 rather than comparing the $8 to the $5. And so the year over year rate of change is going to look naturally slowing because of the base effect. But that base effect won't even come into effect really until next summer. So this is going to last at least until you're going to be hearing about probably 5% plus headline inflation, probably until early next year at a minimum. And then the numbers are going to start to slowly start to look like they're tapering down. And that's when I think the, the Fed will probably start saying, see, this was transitory, even though it's not going to be as transitory as they think. Yeah. So when, when you, you spend so much, uh, too much time on Twitter, as I do, you know, one of the things you can end up with is a lot of these people who are maybe blowing inflation a little bit out of proportion. And so I want to ask you about two things they've been saying and maybe see if you can maybe explain why those maybe are not likely scenarios. And the first is the idea that we're seeing a repeat of the 1970s. And so I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about why what we're seeing now is maybe different than what we saw in the 1970s. Well, it, to be honest, it's, it really comes down to those trends that we talked about earlier. So, you know, I wrote a big hyperinflation piece uh, a couple of days ago, and the four factors that I mentioned that ha are having this big secular, you know, suffocating effect on long-term inflation is demographics, technology, inequality, and globalization. And 
basically none of those things were a problem in the 1970s. And so you didn't have this these big macro downward trends that were causing the rate of inflation to be sort of naturally low. And and I think that's the you know outside of like a situation where let's say that like the MMT people take control of the economy in the next few years and you know the or the AOCs of the world take control of the economy you start seeing these perpetual 3 trillion dollar programs every single year that would probably cause a a, a high inflation environment um not a, maybe not a hyperinflation but it wouldn't shock me in that sort of a scenario where you saw sustained huge government programs it would not surprise me if that led ultimately to a 1970-style environment. But outside of that, where, you know, anytime we have these big fiscal packages, as soon as they get unwound, just like in 2010, those big four deflationary trends, they start taking hold of everything. And that's where you start seeing the mean reversion in the rate of inflation outside of government policy that it causes ultimately the rate of inflation to slow because all four of those factors are just... They're so big that outside of huge um, sort of countercyclical fiscal policies against those, you it's it's pretty hard to imagine an environment where we get a sustained inflation because those four factors are just they're they're so humongous. You you mentioned hyperinflation, and I know you sort of had a little back and forth with Jack Dorsey uh, on Twitter recently when he he mentioned the term. He he sort of said we might be headed for hyperinflation here, and I'm wondering, you know, one of the great things you did in your piece is you sort of defined what hyperinflation is, and you sort of talked about like what it looks like on the streets of a country when hyperinflation is happening. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit because I think people who are using that term may not totally understand what it means. Yeah, well, back and forth is a pretty generous way of <laughs> describing my interaction with Jack Dorsey because I I. I retweeted him and then like like probably nine hours later, he wrote a question mark. And then my my phone became unusable for like basically 24 hours. And it was just filled with with basically Bitcoin people telling me how much I'm, I'm horrible at everything in the world. Um, so but yeah, I mean, hyperinflation is a uh, people in the developed world. I mean, have no idea how horrible a hyperinflation is. I mean, you think the financial crisis was bad. The financial crisis is a cakewalk compared to what a hyperinflation does. A hyperinflation is essentially, I mean, the definition is not, there isn't like a a specific definition, but I think of it as basically like a 50% plus rate of inflation where, again, going back to, you know, that example I used earlier, the price of the goods and services that you're buying, they might literally be changing while you're holding them. And that's what a hyperinflation is. The hyperinflation is not, oh, my margarita costs, you know, $8 now and it used to cost 6 It's, well, you're drinking the margarita, the margarita literally changes in price. And that's how bad it is. And more importantly, usually you're not even drinking margaritas during a hyperinflation. Most of the people that are involved in a hyperinflation, they might be having trouble getting their hands on water, literally. So like, these are incredibly traumatic, really horrible events. They usually, like I wrote a paper following the, the financial crisis because I did a ton of research on this topic back then. And I basically concluded that the, the majority of hyperinflations in the world, they tend to occur around really specific, really horrible geopolitical events. And it's typically losing a war, 
having huge amounts of foreign denominated debt where a foreign country basically comes to you and is like, you know, pay me back now or um, we're going to invade you. And like the, the Germans went through this after World War II where they had huge amounts of, of foreign denominated debt. The Russians went through the same thing when they had a they had a regime change and they had huge foreign denominated debts in the ruble and they had to repay these debts and they had to do so by printing money. And so um, that third one there is regime change where these are literally like the government gets toppled and you bring in a whole new regime. And so those tend to be the three big environments where you get hyperinflations and it's literally a complete collapse of the national currency. So the USA, I mean, as much as we all seem to kind of hate each other right now, I don't think that we're on the verge of like a civil war or like a regime change. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope not. But like that would be the type of environment where you see this really, really horrible, horrific geopolitical event that coincides with essentially a collapse of the domestic currency. I'm wondering, another idea you see out there a lot is this idea that the Fed's toolbox to stop inflation is not as good as their toolbox to stop deflation. So we, we kind of saw in the coronavirus crisis, their, their toolbox to stop deflation is pretty strong. Um, but people are saying on the other side, you know, they kind of evoke the idea of Paul Volcker maybe causing a recession to stop the 1970s inflation. I mean, do you, do you think the Fed maybe is more limited in their ability to control inflation than they are to control like a deflationary situation? Yeah, well, that's the thing that's so, like, I don't know... I don't think the Fed really knows what causes that, you know, sort of escape velocity where you go from, you know, five to 10 to 50% inflation. And so a lot of central banks struggle to control a really, really high inflation because I don't think, you know, it's a lot of it is just controlling the psychology of the people that have already basically lost faith in the government at that point. And I don't think that, you know, the government has a hard time reinstilling the faith in the currency because, People don't trust them. So people don't trust even the policies that you're implementing to try to reverse, you know, what you potentially caused. And so um, I think that's a big part of why central banks have trouble controlling inflation when it gets high. But ultimately, it does come down to kind of that factor of like what the government ultimately has to do is something really, really extreme. And so in a lot of cases, you see huge interest rate increases to try to control the rate of inflation where you are essentially trying to cause a recession or even like a depressionary type environment on the economy where you're basically trying to reduce aggregate demand so much by doing something so extreme that you drive the economy into a recession. And that's why a lot of people say that that monetary policy, Fed policy is a super blunt instrument that it in order for it to be really effective, it has to be implemented in huge quantities and in very, very blunt ways that have really blunt results. And so I think that's a pretty accurate way of describing it, that I do think that the Fed could ultimately control a, 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 a pretty high inflation, but they'd have to do it by like, you know, if, if we had, let's say we had 10% inflation and the Fed came in and they raised interest rates to 20%, well, you know, what would happen to mortgage borrowing in that environment? It would, you know, it would collapse. Um, and so a lot of that is just, and it wouldn't just collapse, it would cause like a probably like a complete stop in all mortgage borrowing. So the housing sector would like completely dry up. The housing sector is such a big important part of the global or the, the domestic economy that you'd by not by nature, you'd have a huge decline in inflation just because you would suffocate aggregate demand. And so 
Um, yeah, the Fed can control that. But once you're kind of in that environment, it gets really tricky, which is why the government has to be really careful about ever even allowing it to get to that point. Because once it gets to that point, well, things are so bad that the response has to be so extreme that in a lot of ways, you know, there's no good answers at that point. I just have one more before I hand it back to Justin. I wanted to ask you, you talked earlier about the Fed sort of targeting an ideal uh, inflation rate of 2%. I'm just wondering where do we come up with that and how much of an exact science is that? Like, how do we think about like what is an actual ideal rate of inflation? I mean, to be honest with you, I don't really know. I mean, I I think a lot of it just comes back to like historical trends probably where um, historically the the economy has grown at something like – a three to four percent real rate of return, and so a rate of GDP, and so uh, a with a with a two percent rate of inflation, that just kind of seems to be what the historical trend has been. Where you know you kind of get into this messy discussion about living standards, and um, it's a, a particularly like hot debate now with like Bitcoin and the so-called deflationary types of money, where people are arguing like. Well, we don't really need inflation in order for there to be growing living standards. And the, you know, the current system would say, well, inflation, some degree of inflation is just a natural byproduct of, an, of a system where we have flexible money in essence. And so that's one of the kickers that I always discuss is that like in a current monetary system, the government actually doesn't create most of the money. Most of the money is technically created by banks and, and that all or most of it comes through the process of like building homes and a lot of mortgage borrowing and things like that that are feeding real economic activity but the kicker is that the money or the money supply in terms of the number of loans and deposits that are created through the banking system it always increases and it will it will always increase over time and this is true even if we move to like a bitcoin standard you'd still have a situation where Ultimately, what would develop is a system very similar where you'd have Bitcoin lending where people who don't have Bitcoin need some Bitcoin to be able to go do the things they want to do and they would borrow it. And that ultimately that would become sort of the monetary standard that we use. But the the kicker is that the amount of financial assets in that system, it's always going to increase. And that's why if you look at any long term chart of financial assets over the long term, and this is assets and liabilities. Both sides of the balance sheet increase over time, and that's just a natural byproduct of more people, more demand, more borrowing, um, more needs for money, literally. And so it, it's a it's a tricky discussion, just because I don't know what the right level of inflation is, but it's I do think that they're right to a certain degree to expect that some degree of inflation is inevitable just because the money supply is always going to be increasing in the long run. And you're always going to have situations where like if you if you argued that the government and the, all of the government's policies are inflationary, well, even if the private sector is perfectly efficient and producing goods and services that are deflationary or or just not inflationary, well, even with a growing government, you still have a certain degree of inflation. And so a lot of this debate comes down to, you know, government versus non-government. What do you expect the, you know, the government to do in our lives and and all that stuff? And so I mean, historically speaking, it's not surprising that there's a a certain rate of inflation that that exists and has existed over time. 
And I'm not sure what that the right rate of inflation is, but some level of low inflation is not inconsistent with improving living standards over time. And I think we've especially seen that in the developed world over like the course of the last 100 years. Uh, just before we wrap up, um, I wanted to kind of pivot from inflation and just talk about some of the new stuff that you're working on, um, you know, personally and, and business wise. And um, I know that you've launched a new company, Discipline Funds, and I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit about what you're doing with that new investment business. Yeah, so this is basically um, we're uh, sort of launching a new asset management arm that um, it, it gives us the ability to offer um, our specific strategies to the, the general public more specifically. So, you know, I'm a big advocate of behavioral finance, behavioral based investing. Um, I'm a big believer in using at least a big part of your financial assets as sort of a treating it more like savings, like literally treating it more like savings than like the typical way that a lot of people view investing, which is sort of this sexy, get rich quick sort of endeavor. And I like to sort of come back to more of a financial planning based perspective where I'm trying to build very um, sort of diverse, low fee, tax efficient portfolios that are planning based, that are meeting certain financial needs for people across specific times that are most importantly behaviorally consistent with the, the long-term goals of people. And so that's why I, I call the company Discipline Funds mainly because what we're trying to do is instill discipline in people to help them try to achieve their financial goals across time in a way that's very structured, that allows them to hopefully behave better and remain more disciplined to a plan and achieve specific financial goals across the long term. I think that's great. I'm surprised like disciplined funds wasn't already taken. I know, me too. <laughs> I was like, when I, when I looked up the URL, I was like, how is this even possible? Like, how is this not a thing? So this should have been taken so. like in like 2003 or something, but um, no, that's great. So, and you're, I think a core um, part of the methodology is this idea of counter cyclical rebalancing sort of like embedded in your um, in, in your strategy. So can you just kind of talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So I kind of, the way I like to think of it is that, um, basically what happens in a typical index fund is you have, for instance, let's say like a 60, 40 stock bond fund. And what happens in that fund is that over time, the stocks naturally outperform the bonds. And so you get 60, 40 and it grows into 70, 30. And at some point over the time horizon there, if you want to maintain the same risk profile, because typically stocks will expose you to more risk the more they're exposing or the, the larger they become a, a part of your portfolio, you have to rebalance that. And so, you know, rebalancing is a very standard part of portfolio management. But the, the kicker is that oftentimes when we rebalance that 70-30 back to 60-40, we're not always measuring it the same way. We're not always rebalancing it back to the same level of risk, importantly. So, for instance, in a period like 2008, a 60-40 is way different than it is in 2010. And so what I actually do is I take the benchmark and I rebalance it counter-cyclically. So if your benchmark is 60-40 and let's say that your portfolio grows to 65-35, well, our benchmark is essentially more dynamic in both directions. And so I'll actually take the portfolio at times back to 55-45, for instance. And so again, what I'm trying to do there is not necessarily time the market or try to generate better um, you know, alpha or better returns necessarily. What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to buffer the, the investor from the potential that they'll overreact. 
So reducing the risk profile at certain times, especially during like big macroeconomic booms where I'm reducing the amount of equity risk because we're basically quantifying the macroeconomic risks as being slightly elevated. And so rebalancing a little bit more dynamically, it's rebalancing in a very tax efficient way, the way that we achieve it. So um, the, the way that the, the strategy is designed, though, is to be a behavioral target where we're keeping people um, you know, in line with their risk profile and hope, hopefully performing better because they behave better ultimately. Yeah, we're excited to uh, hopefully see your growth and development as sort of this gets off the ground and you start to uh, get some growth behind you. Um, just the standard closing question we wanted to ask, and we this is our new question. I don't think we asked this the first time you were on, but um, and it doesn't have to be around this concept of inflation. So it can be about anything you want it to be. But if you uh, could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, um, what would that be? I, you know, the older I get, I feel like the the more I realize, the less I know about all of this stuff. And so it's this weird sort of journey in finance and economics where, you know, you typically think that like the the old guys are the ones that know everything. And I, the more I I find myself becoming an old guy, the more I just sort of have realized how little I know about all this stuff because it's so friggin' complex. And so, you know, I would say that one of the mistakes I made when I was younger was just pigeonholing myself, whether it be inside of like certain, you know, political cliques or whether it's um, even like certain strategies where you can find yourself in a attracted to like a very specific niche type of strategy. And what you'll find is that you could go through really long periods of time where that strategy doesn't perform well at all. And so to me, being super open-minded, not only on the, the political side, but on the economic and finance side, and especially on the investing side, is really important just because you you have to be positioned in a way so that you can kind of navigate all environments. And that's, I think, to a large degree, it's, it's why I've become very attracted to like all weather portfolios because I kind of know that I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I want to, to a certain degree, at least with a big chunk of my assets, I want to diversify so much that I've always got components of my portfolio that are weathering any type of environment. So yeah, being being open-minded to me is like a superpower in finance and economics. I think that's sound good advice. So thank you for that. Um, if people want to learn more about um, what you're working on, read your articles, your research, or follow you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, so it's Cullen Roach, one word, on Twitter, and uh, my company website is disciplinefunds.com. And then um, PragCap, Pragmatic Capitalism, is my blog, and that's where I publish most of my work, my research, and that's probably the best place to find me. But, but yeah, if you want to um, you know, send me hate letters or notes or whatever, that's usually done through Twitter. So that's where all the violent, angry people are, are able to reach me. And just keep in mind, people, this guy's got a pregnant wife at home. <laughs> By the way, congr <laughs> congratulations. That's why on the baby. I, I have to take all the, all the hate because, so, you know, she's too, she's too deep in the throes with other stuff to, to handle all this stuff. So, all right, man. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.